Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, historic amount of things going on, you know, most importantly how they're going to affect health and economy. But given that this is Campaign HQ, uh, we'll also talk about the political side of this. I'd start by saying, you know, you see, not surprisingly, um, I don't want to overstate it, but, you know, Trump might be gaining a small amount of inapproval numbers which I don't think is surprising because we all hope the president and his administration does a good job to keep us all alive and handle this as quickly as possible so our economy can begin to recover. But if you're out there concerned about that, A, get overly alarmed for a few reasons. One, you know, we're very early in this. So, you know, this may look very different 30 days from now as unfortunately we're going to have more deaths and the economy is going to get weakened more. And I think we can track a lot of that back to Trump having his head in the sand and not dealing with this the same way countries like South Korea did. Uh, but also there is this rally behind the leader dynamic. And if you just look at some of the numbers around governors, I think it's very instructive. So, so I think 75 or 77% of Americans uh, support the way their governor is dealing with this. Trump, I think, on average is around 50 or 51. So that means there's a lot of people who didn't vote for those governors who are, you know, a lot more than we see with Trump saying, right now I'm supporting my leader and how they're handling this. So big delta between Trump and the governors, almost 25 points. And it does just point to the need. None of us should blame Trump for the coronavirus, obviously, but it's really important to stay in front of voters and citizens uh, to let them know how Trump mishandled this for a couple of reasons. One, I think it is the one thing that forces him to actually do a good job is when he gets pressure and when he's put under the spotlight. And so leaving politics aside, it's worth doing. Uh, but secondly, you know, there was a poll out uh, today that showed that folks who were not consuming news directly, getting most of their news on social media, you know, are taking this much less seriously, approve of Trump's job performance uh, much more strongly uh, around this crisis. And so, you know, there's groups like Acronym and the Lincoln Project and, you know, Biden Super PAC and others who are putting great content out there. Um, so if you see something you like, please share it in your networks. And those groups are trying to uh, spend money to reach people through advertising because we have to keep in front of people nonstop um, the mistakes Trump's made, both to hold him to accountable, but also make sure he doesn't recreate reality, which he's trying to do. His performance show every day in the White House uh, is not really about trying to educate the American people. It's trying to convince them that he's on top of this and whitewash how he mishandled it. And I think it's only a matter of time before his campaign really gets involved and starts advertising uh, and start trying to paint him out as some historic hero. So I thought it was worth talking about that. Uh, Joe Biden has been more visible this week. He's been doing uh, some interviews, some videos, which is good. Um, I think, you know, none of you should expect that somehow Joe Biden's going to get equal billing with Donald Trump or even major governors or mayors. He's not in office. They're in office. They're responsible for handling this crisis. So it's not going to be equal uh, in terms of coverage or even interest. But I do think Biden needs to be out there. Uh, and I think he's been pretty effective about talking about what he would have done differently and how he'd handle this. Um, I do think that campaign, and, and this goes for, I think, some of our uh, leaders in Washington as well in Congress, need to think about, you know, we're not in an era of conference calls and statements. And even interviews are good. But they don't have the power of the presidential uh, microphone. So, you know, whether you're Joe Biden's campaign or you're Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, leaders in Congress, and you want to communicate to the American people, you really need to be thinking about Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and Snapchat, Reddit, interactive forums. You have to think first. How are we communicating on those platforms? And all those platforms are different. So I'm eager to see that happen. The other thing I'd really be interested to see is when the Biden campaign begins to ask folks around the country to start contacting voters on their behalf. You know, we still have some primaries to come. It may be they all end up in June. We'll see. But the nomination's over. Biden's delegate lead uh, is insurmountable. So they need to turn to the general election. So I'm very eager to start seeing emails and text messages from the Biden campaign asking people if they're interested in calling registration targets in battleground states, writing postcards, asking people to create their own content or share content that they like the Biden campaigns put out. So I think there needs to be a call to action 
really soon uh, from the Biden campaign because, you know, Trump's all over these battleground states and we got a lot of time to make up for. So I'll be eagerly watching that and hoping we see that uh, pretty soon. Um, The other thing I'd say about what happened in D.C., you know, what matters most in terms of this coronavirus aid package, and we're clearly going to have to have more, is the substance of it. So let's not forget that. But there is stage management to this. And I think Democrats have to make sure, A, they are talking directly to voters every minute, every hour, using social media as uh, the North Star of that communication strategy. But, you know, I think let's never react to what Mitch McConnell's doing again. Let's just get in front of him and make sure that we're driving uh, the agenda. Uh, The other thing that's come up uh, in the last couple of days, and I believe Joe Biden spoke to this today when he was doing an interview, is, you know, if there's an April debate, if the Democrats do have an April debate, and that's very much an open question, um, will the candidates attend? Bernie Sanders has said he would. Joe Biden, uh, I think today said uh, he thinks it's time to move on. We've had enough debates. My view is the primary is over. Bernie Sanders is going to decide his own timeline and, and, and way to make that announcement. I have every confidence when he does, he's going to be incredibly helpful to Joe Biden in really meaningful ways. Uh, But I think we have to move on to the general election. We have time to make up for. We've got battleground states to organize. We've got resources to raise. We've got staff to hire. Uh, We've got to be communicating now to general election voters and folks who are registration targets or turnout targets who aren't the types of voters you talk to in a primary generally. So we have to, I I don't think we can waste a dollar, a moment, an ounce of thought on folks who aren't going to decide this general election uh, in the battleground states. And of course, it's important above all else that we have an election. And that's why I'm so excited to have Mark Elias uh, on Campaign HQ this week. Mark is uh, really the preeminent Democratic election attorney, spends a lot of time on voting rights issues, uh, trying to fight back against Republican disenfranchisement effort. He served as the general counsel for both John Kerry's uh, campaign and Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I want to talk to Mark today about how concerned people should be about whether we're going to have an election or not what needs to happen to prepare for various scenarios, and some of the other fights that he's helping lead across the country, and whether we can expect to see some relief on some of these Republican disenfranchisement matters. So it's important to remember, for all the campaign strategy, all the debates, all the ads, all the money raised, all the volunteer hours you're all going to put into, you know, that all is dependent on having an election, an election that's run well, and an election that might be quite different if we end up doing most of it or all of it by mail, um, which organizationally, you know, is different than uh, particularly in states that don't have a lot of vote by mail. If everybody's voting by mail, you're able to track who's returned their ballots. You know when their ballots go out. You can talk to them about getting that ballot in. In a way, organizationally, I prefer it to states where you have everything riding on Election Day just because you have more time uh, and more data. And some people every day are sending in their ballots and you don't have to continually uh, talk to them. It's also a great way to reach people who are not, you know, habitual voters or maybe first time voters who may be a threat on Election Day if something comes up not to make it to the polls. So, you know, our nominee, Joe Biden and everybody running House, Senate, you know, local uh, candidates are going to have to think through a scenario where if it is the fall and we all pray this isn't the case. But if let's say coronavirus comes back like it did back in 1918 or we don't ever have the break we're looking for in the next few months, uh, and we've got to conduct elections by mail, that means everything's different. There's no rallies. uh, There's no door-to-door canvassing. And so candidates and campaigns are going to have to have two game plans, one if things get back to some semblance of normalcy, and one if they don't. And they're going to have to try and execute uh, whichever one we end up running this election under uh, as perfectly as they can. But we're going to start with, are we going to have an election? And if so, what do we need to do to prepare for those scenarios with Mark Elias? Mark Elias, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. All right. Well, let's start with this, Mark. What needs to happen to ensure that we have an election on November 3rd? And I think part of what I want to ask is if the worst happens, we pray that it doesn't. But, you know, the virus comes back in the fall like it did in 1918, or we're just in a a state where it's not going to be safe to vote physically. What needs to happen to make sure we have a presidential election on November 3rd? Okay, so I'm glad you started with that, because I think if people walk away with nothing else, they should walk away with this. We will have an election on November 3rd. The states and governors are given wide discretion in the setting of their primaries, which is why 
you see these primary elections uh, move, uh, you know, with relative ease when governors and state election officials and health officers think that they need to. Election day, the general election, however, though, for federal elections is set by Congress in federal law. So those statutes, unless they are changed by a new act of Congress passed by both houses, signed by the president, those laws are going to be in effect. So we need to deal with the reality that if we have a pandemic still present in November, we need to have voting systems that are capable of operating in that environment because there is no moving that date. So that's really helpful clarification for people. So we see in this package that may pass today, the coronavirus relief package, which will not be the last one, obviously, but there is some money in there uh, to uh, support efforts um, at moving more states to vote by mail. But talk about what needs to happen. Some of that's resource, some of it's law. But what needs to happen to make sure, because I assume your view would be, we need to be prepared to execute this election fully by mail in every state if, if we still have a pandemic here in the states. Yeah. So um, first, what they did today was um, the bill that came out uh, provides $400 million uh, for assistance to the states in dealing with voting in the current environment. Um, just to put that in perspective, the Brennan Center said that uh, what was needed was $2 billion. The Republicans' uh, initial proposal, Senator McConnell uh, offered uh, or proposed 150, and, and Senate Democrats really went to bat here to get that number up to $400 million with the understanding that obviously there are going to be further uh, appropriations necessary under COVID and that elections will have to be a priority um, in those. Uh, but McConnell and the Republicans are not willing participants in that. Now, that said, we need to be prepared for every person in America who wants to vote by mail to be able to vote by mail. That doesn't mean that everyone will want to. There may be there may be areas or particular communities that, you know, still want to have the capability of voting in person. And if the worst does not come to pass and we are in a, a situation in which voting in person can be done safely, uh, states that want to be prepared for both need to be prepared for both. But they all need to be prepared to be uh, so that everyone who wants to vote by mail can vote by mail um, in the event that everyone wants to or the or, or the overwhelming majority want to. So let's talk about um, every state's important, every election's important, but I want to talk about the presidential election. So, um, and, you know, Pennsylvania, you know, changed their law uh, to allow more vote by mail, not as expansive, my understanding is, as some of the other states, um, you know, they've been doing it for a while. So where are you most concerned in the battleground states that we could run into some resistance or we need some changes legislatively to fully maximize people's ability to vote by mail? Yeah, I'm really glad you you asked that because one of the things I've been emphasizing is that like every voting technology, vote by mail has its pluses and vote by mail has its minuses. And so the pluses are really obvious. The pluses are that it allows people to vote without interacting with other people in person. The downside is that we know from looking at data in other states that uh, vote by mail, um, unless it is properly structured, will lead to uh, rejected mail ballots in higher proportion for young voters and for minority voters. Um, we know that because we have experience looking at the rejection rates of mail ballots in states where people have already been voting by mail or voting no excuse absentee. So when you take that data, what you wind up with is four things that I think wind up being the the keys to having vote by mail um, that doesn't disenfranchise young voters and minority voters. And that is, um, number one, uh, paying for postage. The states need to pay for postage. When you make voters pay for their own postage, it decreases participation, but it, in particular, uh, you wind up with more ballots being rejected by young people and some socioeconomic groups uh, more than, than others. The second is um, we need to make sure that the election day cutoff is for postmark, not for receipt. There is really good data, uh, some out of Arizona in a lawsuit that I'm bringing, and some out of Florida, which have looked back at ballots that have been rejected because they came in 
after the day of the election, even though they were postmarked before. In some states, those ballots count. In some states, they don't. And when you look at the data in the states in which those ballots don't count, what you see is they are, by a multiple, more likely to be rejected if they're uh, from Native American, Hispanic, African American, and 18 to 21. So, you know, the, and, we're, and we're talking about really, really differential rates between those groups and uh, white uh, non-young white voters. So we need to make sure that ballots cast uh, that are uh, postmarked on election day count. The third uh, is signature matching procedures need to not unnecessarily uh, discard ballots based on mismatched signatures and voters being given an opportunity to cure. Just so your audience knows what that means, it's it's when people vote by mail, you sign the outer envelope. That outer envelope is, signature is then compared with the signature on file, and if it doesn't match, the state doesn't count the ballot. Now, in some states, they have very liberal interpretations of match, and some states they have very strict interpretations of match, and in some states, they notify the voter and give them an easy way to fix it, and in some states, they don't notify the voter at all. And we know that those signature matching laws if applied wrong, again, disproportionately affect young voters and um, uh, Hispanics and African-Americans in particular. And so we need to make sure signature matching laws are not disenfranchising voters. And then finally, many states allow for community organizations to collect sealed voted ballots. So no one's here is talking about unsealed ballots. No one's talking about blank ballots. We're talking about after they've been voted and they've been sealed. In some states like California, it is legal for community organizations to collect those ballots and deliver them so that they get to the right place on time to be counted. We have seen a wave of laws that have been passed by Republican legislatures, including in Arizona, in a case that I brought and and won, where the Republican legislatures have been banning ballot collection. And again, the data is really clear that it disproportionately negatively impacts uh, Hispanic, African-American, Native American, and young voters. So those are the four things that I, you know, I sometimes describe as the four pillars, but those are the four things that we need to protect. So when you look at those four things and you apply them then to the presidential battleground states, it's a long answer to your question, but when you then apply those to the presidential battleground states, you know, what you find is that states like Pennsylvania, which don't have a history of of vote by mail or no excuse absentee voting. This is going to be the first cycle, the first election with it. They have an election day cut off. They don't pay for postage, I don't believe. And it's unclear where they stand on ballot collection. So I worry about that in Pennsylvania, for example. Um, But uh, North Carolina is a state that I'm very focused on with this regard. Uh, I mentioned I'm already suing Arizona, Georgia, uh, Florida uh, are all states. Wisconsin are all states that I would say on one measure or another, um, pose a risk that a vote by mail will um, uh, will negatively impact those constituencies. Right. So a state like Pennsylvania, we have a Democratic governor, um, and they have, wouldn't this be an opportunity to relook at the law they passed now to finally allow no excuse mail voting and fix it so that it meets your criteria? I mean, this would be an opportunity, it seems like, not just in states that haven't done this, which we'll get to in a minute, but states that have it, but it's not, you know, the the right design to get the right kind of, uh, you know, enfranchisement. It's an opportunity to go back and try and fix it, right? That's exactly right. And I think that that's something that Pennsylvania, you know, is a good example of a state that, that can do that and should do that. Um, you know, Michigan, I'm I'm currently suing over their signature matching law. I'd been suing about that before. And I would urge, you know, the the Democrats in that state to, you know, to consider, you know, whether they just want to proactively on something like signature match, you know, implement a fairer system in Michigan. There's no standards for signature matching and there's no right to be notified, even if your if your signature doesn't match and a ballot is rejected. Well, for those of you that are listening that live in battleground states, and I know a lot of you do, this is an opportunity to contact your Democratic elected officials and really encourage them slash urge them slash demand uh, that they do everything they humanly can uh, to get this right. So, Mark, what's interesting when you talk about McConnell and some of the Republicans wanting to spend less money uh, from an election standpoint, you know, you started by saying we have a federal law that dictates that we're going to have an election. You also have the 20th Amendment to the Constitution as a backstop, right? Which means if we 
if there is no election on January 21st, uh, Donald Trump would no longer be president. So talk to me a little bit about why. Is it just they think they can do this more cheaply? Um, I mean, is it are they thinking, listen, there are going to be states, no matter the situation with the pandemic, that will have Election Day voting, and they know that Republicans and Trump voters take it less seriously, so they're likely to get advantage by turnout. Like, talk about the motivation there. So it's your view is it's not like they're trying to somehow uh, not have an election. So w- what's behind their uh, recalcitrance here to spend what's required? So one of the things about the Trump era is that, you know, Donald Trump has no shame, uh, and that has worn off on on Republicans in Congress and elsewhere. And so I actually think the, that McConnell and the Republicans have been pretty straightforward in their reasoning, which is that they believe that vote by mail helps Democrats, and therefore they would rather not have vote by mail. I don't know that, that, that their calculus is, in fact, accurate, um, but I think it roughly goes something like this. Uh, number one, Republicans seem to be taking coronavirus less seriously and therefore more likely to turn out. And number two, if you look at election day, and you're the expert on this, Democrats oftentimes win the early vote and the vote by mail and then lose the in-person voting. So the logic, I think, on McConnell's part goes, well, then if we cut down on early voting and vote by mail, then, you know, we will win more elections. So in that theory, it would be, let's say the election were happening today, (laughs) where we do have a pandemic, we have lockdowns in many states, their view would be, let's just soldier on. uh, And those that show up, show up, and they believe that they will be even more advantaged than they normally believe they are on election day, correct? I think that's exactly, uh, yeah, I think that's exactly their, their theory, because they haven't offered any rationale for underfunding the provisions in this bill, nor in opposing vote by mail. So I think it's just that simple. So you talked about some of the battleground states where we have less than perfect um, vote by mail procedures, and, and those are desperately needed to be fixed. There's obviously still a bunch of states that don't have any vote by mail at all. So what's your view of what the journey is going to look like here to make the types of changes? And if you could talk about the types of changes that need to happen to allow states that don't have vote by mail at all, or, or really under restrictive scenarios, to at least prepare for a scenario where most of their population or a lot of their population may need to vote by mail. Yeah, so I think you can start with you know, states that are run by, that have Democratic election officials or Democratic governors. So I want to give credit to Governor Cuomo uh, in New York, which does not have vote by mail and does not have no excuse absentee. Um, he issued an executive order that said, essentially, fear of the COVID illness, um, you know, waiting in line at a polling place, uh, and uh, and contracting COVID is in and of itself an excuse. So, you know, one of the things that I think is important for your listeners to do is, you know, look at what the excuses are in your state if it's only excuse and, you know, ask your elected officials to make clear that fear of COVID is in fact a valid excuse because that's that that you know is something that a governor can typically do by executive order or a secretary of state can do by you know by um, by administrative uh, determination. Um, uh, so that's that's number one. Number two is you know if 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 there is not going to be an expansion of vote by mail, and I and I think governors have a lot of authority to implement vote by mail, even where their law doesn't doesn't seemingly provide for it um, as a public health matter. And we've seen that in some of the primary states where vote by mail has been implemented, even though um, it's not called for in the law, but it's, it's essentially a health matter. So I think governors have that authority. But even where you have a governor who's not going to do that, and the, the excuse, you know, the, the, the refinement of what constitutes an excuse is not um, is not possible, then in those states, you know, making sure that we have adequate 
in-person voting opportunities that are safe for people is really important. And, I, and frankly, I'd say that's really important even in states that do have vote by mail. There are, as you know, um, uh, David, better than probably anyone in America, there are communities that simply prefer in-person voting, and they prefer yeah, oftentimes in-person early voting. And making that experience available and safe is also something that's really important. Right. Right. So, yeah, we need election officials to plan for a scenario to enable that, as you said. But, you know, you could be in a situation where, again, we all pray this isn't the case. But if the election were happening now, you know, you'd probably be looking at 70 to 80 percent of people in states, you know, desiring to vote by mail. So those are the big changes that have to happen. So, Mark, also um, on the I don't know if you uh, have uh, thoughts on the 20th Amendment. You, you know, you see a lot of people talking about this on social media. There seems to be um, some folks who suggest that if there is no election, Nancy Pelosi would be uh, the president. I think the more accurate reading is Patrick Leahy would be. But anything to offer that to that discussion? So I'm not going to weigh in as between Patrick Leahy and, and Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> I will tell you that it, I will tell you the two people it can't be. Okay, the two people it can't be are the president and the vice president. Like we know that. So it can neither be Donald Trump nor Mike Pence. So it then either goes to the the speaker or to the Senate pro tem. And those are those two individuals. Um, and I will keep my own counsel on which of those two. I would simply say that either of them would make a fine president. <laughs> You're very diplomatic, as I know you always are. But it is interesting. So, yeah. So, again, this should give people more confidence. I mean, as you said, you st we started the discussion by there's a law. We're going to have an election. The challenge is to make it an election that as many people as possible can participate in. You also have the 20th Amendment. So for those that are concerned that, you know, Trump's going to issue some kind of executive order here that says we're not going to vote for six months, um, you know, rest easy. That's not going to happen. So, Mark, I'd like to talk about, you know, you've probably done more than anybody uh, in the country over the last couple decades to fight Republican efforts to disenfranchise voters. So, you know, you mentioned some of the lawsuits you already had going pre-coronavirus in Arizona and Michigan. Can you talk about that more broadly? Like, where are you most concerned as it relates to this November um, that we could lose states uh, either in a Senate race or a presidential race? And where do you think there might be some potential for relief based on some of the lawsuits you're filing? Yeah, so the places um, uh, I am most concerned um, are the places that rely um, most heavily on in-person voting um, for the reasons we said. So I think that, you know, if you look at the Republican plan around the census, you get some sense of their plan around um, Election Day, which is that they're basically just starving the census. Um, and uh, and if they under-resource um, these elections, uh, then you could, you could have, uh, and you don't have a lot of vote-by-mail options, you could have very, very few polling locations available. Um, and that will, in states like North Carolina, which is very high on my list of, of of states I'm worried about, you know, if you if you're not able to man the polls during the early vote period, um, then that is going to definitely impact overall turnout, and it's going to negatively impact uh, turnout among African Americans uh, and young voters, um, just based on on past patterns of voting. So I worry about states like North Carolina that have really, really strong cultures of early voting. Florida in the presidential arena also for the same reasons, as, as you know, um, having, having, I think, been the last manager to win Florida for a presidential campaign. Um, uh, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe in 2012, uh, Obama won Florida as well. But, I'm, uh, but in any event... We, want, uh, we wanted eight and 12, narrowly. But so let me just stop you there. So in North Carolina and Florida, though, so is, is one of, uh, you know, the challenges... Um, when you we'll we'll talk about some of the remedies to just fix the problem, which are not that complicated. It's like simple math. But but if you are worried about lines, it seems to me what you want to do in Florida, North Carolina, is you know you you want to talk to those voters, right, and say you're we know that you like to vote early in person on this Saturday, but if you're allowed to vote by mail, you should exercise that option. Don't we want to basically? 
I'll, I'll get to the government responsibility in a minute, but from like Joe Biden's campaign uh, and the Senate races, you know, Cal Cunningham's in North Carolina, it seems you're going to also want to do all you can to bring those numbers down right, as infuriating as that is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, that, and, and that's, that's exactly right. But as you know, that's a, that's a messaging challenge from what many of those voters have heard yes. in, in the past. So you're telling them something yes, that is right. different than how, how they, what they've been told in the past. But I think they need to be told that early. They need to be told that in states that, continue, that are continuing to have primaries, even if those primaries are not competitive. They need to be told that starting now um, and not assume that, that every voter is paying as close attention as, as you and I or others listening to this are about the changes in, in voting rules. All right. So I want you to get back to your role of states, but let me ask you a question like, so Florida, so North Carolina, we have a Democratic governor, but a Republican legislature. Florida, we don't have anything. And let's just talk about early vote for, for listeners who aren't from Florida. So, you know, this is simple math. You know, you can uh, estimate with an eerie degree of accuracy um, how many people are going to go vote early on what days at what hours. And then, you know, the smart thing, to, if we treated this like a business, we would flex, you know, people, equipment, voting locations to match that demand. But what we have is people standing in line for six or eight hours, and many of them will stay in the line, but a lot of them don't, which is tragic. So what remedies do we have, Mark, in a place where we don't have any of the machinery to actually have that early vote period get prosecuted more effectively? Yeah. So one of the things that is the biggest problem with lines is lack of personnel. And that's really the thing I'm focused on right now for in-person voting. Most of the people who work the polls, you know, as you know from your experience, tend to be older, oftentimes retired, um, and they're doing this as part of kind of their, their civic duty to give back. Well, those people, and we're already seeing this in the primaries, like elderly poll workers are simply not showing up. And they're, they're going to be harder to recruit and harder to get to show up to, to man polling locations. So um, that, I think, is a challenge. I think the solution, which, you know, is, is part a government solution and part a campaign solution, is to, is to bolster those cores. So one of the things I would tell a, any campaign right now on the Democratic side is, you know, you're going to go out and recruit you know, thousands and thousands of poll watchers or lawyers outside the polls. Turn those people in the first instance into poll workers, like push those people into the programs that that train people to be poll workers at the polls, because that's where the shortage is going to be. If, if we have a debilitating long line situation, that's going to be the main thing. And that doesn't depend on the state to allocate any resources. That's just filling slots that if they don't get filled, lead to poll closures. Um, you know, states, I think, should also be looking at creative ways of looking of of converting their civil service workforce into poll workers for election day as well, um, which is not often done in most states. Yeah, well, those are both great points. And the first one would be a big shift, right? Campaigns generally recruit people, as you mentioned, poll watchers, lawyers, people to go canvas on election day, make phone calls. But, you know, if you had some percentage of them at the top of the line would be we need to recruit X amount of poll workers in, in these precincts. Um, I think, A, it's doable and, and B, really smart. But but getting back, so there's the personnel shortages, but but like in Florida, let's just stay there. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is this is simple math, correct? Which if you can estimate by precinct um, or by polling location what you think the supply is going to be in terms of voters who want to vote early— Making sure that you have enough equipment, enough people, enough voting uh, machines. Um, so, so of all the public policy issues we deal with, many of them are super complex and we don't have the answers for. This is like fifth grade math, it seems to me. And one question I have for you before you talk about is also what is more infuriating to me than even when it happens in Republican states is when we control all the machinery and we don't execute Election Day properly. That's right. That's right. Look, we thought, you know, before before COVID became as as big of a national public health concern as it is now, we saw debilitating long lines in the primaries. And we saw debilitating long lines in in red counties, blue counties, red states, blue states. I mean, there were there were seven hour long lines in Texas, which was largely a function of policy that Republicans of the state um, had implemented. But we also saw it in some pretty blue places in Texas where it was a shortage of of personnel. And in California, we saw really long lines. And that's a state obviously run by Democrats. So, so it's not 
it, some of it is intentional um, voter suppression, and I think that that's a really important topic to come back to, particularly in light of some changes to the RNC consent decree. But some of this is really um, just the basic blocking, blocking and tackling of getting polling locations cited, getting them opened, getting them staffed, getting the equipments, uh, equipment set up. And, uh, you know, that's part of why I think if I were a presidential campaign manager, like, I wouldn't be leaving that to the counties to chance. I would be having a definite program to try to push volunteers through those programs who are young and who are reliable to show up so that these elections open on time, they run smoothly, um, and everyone can vote. Well, good thing you have a strong and long relationship with one Jen O'Malley Dillon, so you can make sure that... Uh, <laughs> no, but that is... This is... I mean, what's interesting about this, Mark, is um, this is new, but it is a doable prospect, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that that if you're asking voters in Michigan or Pennsylvania or North Carolina who are like, in this case, Biden supporters um, to go spend a day at the polls, I think they'll do it. Um, we just yeah, have to really organize do that. So I, I interrupted you. So you talk about North Carolina and Florida. Where else are you concerned? Like where else are you filing lawsuits or, or where else do you think you could get relief that could make a difference at this November? So I'm suing Michigan over a series of provisions and Michigan's a good example of where, um, you know, they had a very antiquated system. They passed by proposition a very good progressive set of voting laws, um, but they didn't change some of the sort of plumbing behind the behind those laws. So I mentioned signature match is something that I'm, I'm suing over in Michigan. The other one is, so I don't know if you know this, David, or anyone in your audience does, in 2018, uh, Uber provided free rides to the polls in 49 states. The only state they didn't provide free rides to the polls was in Michigan, because there's a criminal law in Michigan that pro- that prohibits anyone from paying for someone else to get a ride to the polls. Um, this is a very old law, very antiquated, outdated, but it prevents community organizations, or in this case, even Uber, from providing free rides to the polls where the drivers are being paid to provide them. So we're challenging that law um, uh, as well. So there are laws like that um, in in um, in Michigan that we're challenging. I've got five lawsuits currently pending against the state of Texas. Um, uh, there is almost nothing Republicans in Texas won't do to make voting harder, um, uh, and they do it with gusto and creativity. Um, so, uh, I've, like I said, I've got five lawsuits in Texas. Um, and I think if, 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 if a Democrat is to win Texas, um, whether it's better O'Rourke at the Senate level coming close or this cycle, um, MJ Hagar or the, or the important congressional races there, or even the presidential, um, to do well in Texas, we're going to need, uh, to have a fair election. And right now, um, the election processes down there are really designed to keep um, uh, voters from being registered and from voting, particularly Hispanic uh, voters. So that's that's part of the reason why uh, I'm so focused on 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 Texas. Um, and then beyond that, there are some recurring issues that come up across the states. You know, I've got six lawsuits right now pe- uh, pending. One I've won and is on appeal from the other side. Um, over ballot design and specifically over ballot order, ballot name order. So there are some states, as you know, David, that rotate the names on the ballot by precinct. Some put them randomly. Um, But there are several states that have static ballot order. So in Florida, the party of the governor, the the first name on for every election at every level in every county and every precinct uh, is is the party of the governor or Republican. So we sued Florida um, and uh, after a trial, the court found that there is a five percentage point advantage on average being listed first on the ballot. Um, so Republicans have started those elections with a five percent advantage. Now it's smaller at the presidential level. It's probably a point or two. It's bigger down ballot. It's probably seven or eight points when you get all the way down. Senate and House, you know, or governor, maybe it's two, two and a half points. But but here's here's the thing. Like Andrew Gillum lost by four tenths of a point. Um, uh, uh, Bill Nelson lost by one tenth of a point, and Hillary Clinton lost, I think, by less than two percentage points. So, so these these small things matter. So, I'm suing a number of states: Texas, uh, 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 Florida. Like I said, we won. The Republicans are appealing. 
um, uh, uh, we're suing Georgia and, and, like I said, a handful of other states over ballot order because those are the kinds of things that are not very interesting. They're not very, you know, they don't make the news like, uh, you know, a voter ID law does. But, you know, when you talk about adding a percentage point for being listed first being versus being listed second, that's real. And for skeptics um, who, who say, well, it can't possibly be that, you know, people vote that way, I would, I would point them to two things. Number one, in, in Illinois, as you know, David, people wait online to be the first filed candidate uh, because they list based on uh, order of filing. Um, uh, and number two, for anyone who's ever taken a poll or had a pollster take a poll, they rotate the candidate names in the poll in order to counteract this, what's referred to as primacy effect, which is the, the distortion of being listed first. And so um, uh, that's why pollsters do it. And it's uh, uh, why people wait in line to be listed first in Chicago. And, uh, and uh, that's an example of, a, of the kind of laws that uh, we're challenging as well. It's a great point. No. And, you know, we fight so hard, you know, the advertising, the organizing, everything we do is, you know, on the margins. Right. And and something like that, that could be a point or two would probably have the greatest effect of all. Uh, so, Mark, hearing you speak and, and I want to thank you for the heroic work you're doing uh, in this regard. It does when we think about if Trump wins um, and all the disastrous uh, effects that come from that. Uh, and we talk about, you know, one of them is the courts, obviously, and we think about women's health and so many issues. But if, if he has 16 years of judges, just hearing you uh, talk about all the lawsuits that you have filed, you're going to file, you are engaged in now, I mean, that could be with us for decades, right, in terms of having a judiciary at every level that's disinclined to make it easier for people to register and vote. That's exactly right. Um, and uh, it's frightening. It's frightening on, uh, on, on as, a, as a lawyer, it's frightening for for. For two reasons. First of all, the the judges that the that the president is appointing um, are generally not universally, but 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 generally hostile to voting and voting rights. And the remainder of the Voting Rights Act, you know, uh, which was not struck down in Shelby County, you know, if if there are enough new conservative judges and justices, uh, could be in doubt as could many of the other tools that are used uh, to protect voting rights. But the second the second thing, which is which is kind of like lurking out there, and there's not really been much discussion of. But um, I've seen it now in court after court where um, Republicans are saying that voting law challenges are simply not justiciable. In other words, they just simply can't be decided by the courts, that they're basically political questions for legislatures to sort out, and the courts shouldn't even be reviewing them. And honestly, that's terrifying. I mean, if we get to a place where courts start to say, we actually don't get in the middle of this because that's just for legislatures uh, to fight out, uh, then, you know, then, then, uh, then, then the horse is really out of the barn and, the, and who knows what we'll see. And you saw a little bit of that in, in the redistricting case, the part of the, the, where the Supreme Court said it was non-justiciable. And frankly, though, decided on a different grounds, and thankfully it looks like the D.C. Circuit and Bonk is going to you know, review it and potentially reverse it. You saw it in the McGahn subpoena litigation where the, where the, you know, the D.C. Circuit panel was kind of like, ah, yeah, Congress, you know, has a subpoena, but, you know, we don't really think it's the role of the courts to decide these things. And that's, that's a sort of hidden danger out there as well. Right. That's a great point. Uh, so, Mark, what, when, what can the average person do? Obviously, and I want you to speak about this first for lawyers uh, who may want to get involved uh, in your efforts and other efforts, and then the average citizen. What can they do? How can they get in the fight here, both in the short term, meaning this next election, but over the next period of years, where this is so fundamental, obviously, to not just the health of our democracy, but making sure we can move the country in a progressive direction? Yeah. So I think, you know, for for lawyers, you know, what I would say is use your legal talent to help, you know, fight for progressive causes, both in voting rights, but more, but more generally, you know, one of the things about lawyers is we tend to, you know, we tend to react, be reactive to the thing that is immediately in front of us. So when there were, you know, when there were immigrants 
being excluded at the airports. Lawyers were all at, you know, five major airports as opposed to, at, you know, you know, having some of them at the airports and the rest fighting for voting rights. And, and so one of the things I'd encourage lawyers to do generally is to just be active around progressive politics. I actually created an organization that I chair the board of called We the Action, which tries to match progressive lawyers with progressive causes. And if there are lawyers out there who want to go there, it's wetheaction.org. Um, so that's one thing. For, but for everyone, whether you're a lawyer, I'm sorry, whether you're a lawyer or not, like, be aware of what the laws are. How, give good information to your neighbors and your friends. Um, I mean, I'm sure, David, you have spoken about this so eloquently in the past. Um, I hope you've given your audience a sense of this. The power of neighbors talking to neighbors and friends talking to friends around voting is super important. And that's true about voting rules as much as it is about anything else. So, you know, tell your neighbors that you what the rules are to vote uh, in your state. Tell them how they get a mail ballot. That's really important. And then finally, contact your elected officials. Put pressure on them. Let them know that voting matters in the next stimulus bill, that voting, funding voting is a priority in the city council meetings, that funding voting equipment is is important. You know, be be active citizens around this. That's really great advice. So, uh, again, wetheaction.org is a place for folks uh, who are attorneys to go if they want to get involved uh, in some of these voting rights efforts. And then I do agree with you, Mark. I mean, I think when I was on my book tour uh, until it got uh, the last part of it postponed, every event I did, you know, people would ask about Republican efforts to make it harder to register and vote. And what do we do? What do we do? And I say, well, you know, we need to, you know, there's heroes like Mark Elias and lawyers who are fighting back. We need to win more elections in more places, right? So that we are not just stopping bad things from happening, but putting forward sort of ideal electoral reform and procedures. But um, it you just got to organize, right? And it's an extra burden. If laws change from one election to another, it's a burden on everybody to communicate to your friends and neighbors that something's changed, but we have to do it. Um, and again, this is a case where I agree with you. We just can't, we hope our presidential campaign and local campaigns do it perfectly well, but we can't wait for them. So if you've got a hundred people that you've, you know, got in your network or friends and family members, you know, you need to talk to all of them, right? And make sure they understand, well, this year you need this requirement or early vote locations change this year. Or have you thought about voting by mail? Like you just got to be on top of this. Uh, and again, we need our campaigns to be on top of it, but we need all of us as citizens to be. I, I violently agree with that. And to that end, you know, I'm sure I know you've talked in other uh, at other times about disinformation, but we're also going to see a lot of disinformation about voting. And that's part of why talking to your neighbors and friends and being a trusted source for information is so important, because otherwise, you know, the the forces that are trying to spread disinformation about voting, about, you know, whether it's out and out suppression, you know, show up on the wrong day, or whether it's just bad information um, about how to how to vote, you know, it's really important that that we have trusted networks of people who can tell folks what the truth is. Well, that's a great point because we're going to see it. It's going to be much more organized than it was in '16. Uh, whether it's coming out of Moscow or out of Trump Tower, we are going to see. And you even think about, you know, on vote by mail. You're going to see messaging to people saying, actually, you can't vote by mail. Actually, you know, our state decided you couldn't do it. Right. And the best anecdote to that is all of us making sure we're on top of our business and saying, no, that's not true. Knowing the law to your point. No, it's pretty scary. And I when people think about that, I think sometimes people can almost throw up their hands and say, well, how on earth can we win versus that? But we can. We have the numbers, right? And and if we've got uh, all have the motivation to do that sort of work uh, and just live our life every day a little bit through the cause here, we can fight back. It is frustrating. I always tell people I'm not willing to go as low as they are uh, to win. I don't think we have to. If we lose this election, I may rethink that. <laughs> but, you know, I think we can win uh, playing it fairly and squarely, but it is going to take extra work because they're going to be millions and millions of dollars spent, if not more, telling people wrong election days, wrong polling locations, saying you can't vote by mail. And we should all expect that. Let's not get frustrated by that. Uh, we can be frustrated, but let's just know it's happening and what's our own individual plan to fight back. Yeah, I agree. And to your point about the spread of disinformation from Moscow to Trump Towers, you know, something that, you know, I know you're keenly aware of 
is that um, in 1990, in 1981, the Republicans ran a despicable voter suppression program in the governor's race in New Jersey. That led, by the way, Roger Stone was the political director for the campaign that benefited, I might add. That led to a consent decree that was put in place that prohibited the Republican National Committee from directing um, these kinds of programs. Uh, that consent decree expired on December 1st, 2016. So we're also going to be in the first election in which the Republican National Committee itself, not proxies on the outside, but itself can run so-called ballot security or suppression programs. And that's, you know, that's 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 something, um, you know, that's going to have to be top of mind uh, for campaigns as well. With no legal jeopardy, just completely free and clear to engage in that kind of activity, huh? Yeah. And as you know, that the original consent decree, you know, was involved in election for governor. Tom Kane Sr. beat Jim Florio by, I think, 1,800 votes. And the Republican National Committee had organized something called the ballot, uh, the National Ballot uh, Integrity Task Force, I think. Uh, and they had off-duty police officers uh, with dressed in uniforms with, uh, you know, sidearms showing and radio squawking with black armbands. Uh, and big signs that said this this area is being patrolled. And they had these in majority African-American and Hispanic areas of New Jersey. And it probably affected the outcome of that election. And that led to a court order whereby the RNC couldn't do that anymore. That court order expired uh, after several extensions expired uh, in on December 1st, 2016. So this is going to be the first presidential election where the Republican National Committee will be able to do that again. Well, that doesn't sound at all like anything Donald Trump would like to do, right? That is so foreign in terms of the way he <laughs> operates. That is a scary proposition. Well, Mark, thank you for being uh, with us today. Most importantly, thank you for your service uh, to the country and, and our democracy and wish you best of luck in these lawsuits and um, staying on top of things between now and November. Great. I appreciate it. Great conversation with Mark Elias. Uh, one, we are going to have an election. Mark, I think, laid out in uh, helpful detail why that's going to be the case. But how that election get engaged is something we're all going to have to pay close attention to and get involved in. So I think he had some great points about, you know, talking to your state legislatures and governors and member of Congress about making sure that we are voting by mail everywhere we can potentially making sure that every American can exercise that option if we are conducting this election next fall with a pandemic still occurring. Secondly, I thought some great points about Election Day, separate and apart from from the pandemic, that uh, our presidential campaign and local candidates um, need to pay more attention to recruiting poll workers, which is interesting because most campaigns just assume that's going to be the job of the government. Um, but these are volunteers who, or in some cases, they're compensated, but they have to volunteer to be so. Uh, and so for campaigns to say, okay, if I have 10 people recruited uh, in this precinct, maybe one of them can go if they're willing to be a poll worker. So that obviously is intensified with the pandemic. If we are having uh, next fall, there's concerns about health. You are going to have some poll workers, understandably not comfortable showing up. So we're going to have to have reinforcements. But regardless of that, incredibly important. Uh, and just, you know, it does bring home the importance of this election. We think about it every day, climate, health care, rule of law. But, you know, if we have 16 years of Trump judges, our ability to really conduct free and fair elections is going to be seriously compromised. So if you didn't have enough motivation for why we had to win the election, that's another one. So thanks for tuning in and look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.